At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. Hopefully you found Matthew 18. We're going to be digging into uh, the first six verses this morning. Uh, The late... Uh, author David Foster Wallace has a well-known story that he told during a commencement speech while he was alive about two fish. In the story, two fish are swimming along in the ocean, and as they're swimming, they pass by an older fish who's swimming the opposite way. As the older fish swims by, he nods at the two fish, and he says, "'Morning, boys. How's the water?' The two boys kind of keep, or the two fish keep swimming for a little bit longer, and finally the one fish turns the other and he says, What the heck is water? It's kind of a funny antidote to remind us that oftentimes we can find ourselves in culture around us that we just don't even recognize or realize because it's just so the water that we swim in, right? What the heck is water? I think one of those things that's incredibly pervasive within our cultural reality that we often, uh, I think, miss, sometimes neglect, maybe feel, but don't recognize its pervasiveness, is conflict. Conflict is everywhere. It's the water we swim in, so much so that we don't even realize how often we really engage conflict. But if you really think about it, conflict is everywhere we look. You read the headlines globally, and they're inundated with conflict, right? I even just looked up the headlines from major news news networks this week, and it was like every headline is related to conflict, not just Russia and Ukraine or Israel and Hamas, although those are major conflicts, but but everywhere we look, right? Nationally, we we describe and recognize that we live in a culture of conflict. We use terms normally and regularly to describe our culture like culture wars, that this is just what we exist in. All right, we, we look at conflict all over the place. We experience personal conflict. Right? Your social media feeds are filled with it. And if you don't believe me, just read the comment section on the internet. There's conflict everywhere. Right? We're, we're almost surrounded by it so much we've become desensitized to it. We're entertained by it. Our attention is drawn to it. It's used to market things to us. It's everywhere. And we've we've almost become desensitized and resolved to the reality of conflict. That this is just the world that we live in and the way that we exist. Humans are social creatures. We're wired for community. We know it's not healthy for any of us to live in isolation. And the biblical story reminds us that that sin has entered the picture and broken those relationships. Conflict is not a new reality for us. 
Conflict has been present throughout the history of humanity, but it is a pervasive reality. And the technology that we engage has actually only made it more pervasive. I read an interesting article uh, this week by a man named D.C. Schindler called Social Media is Hate Speech. And his whole premise in it is that humans are actually wired to engage with reason and speech towards one another. That this is our natural way in which we're created and to interact, right? We have words, we're distinct, we're meant to reason and engage one another. But his point is, human experience in reason is meant to be engaged interpersonally. That we're not disembodied creatures, but embodied creatures. And part of the way that we experience one another is through our physical interactions. And the point he goes on to make in the article is that social media has actually removed that reality within our society. It's limited our personal interactions when we come in the way in which we engage. Not only that, it's actually limited our reason. I don't know if you realize this, but it's really hard to articulate thoughtful, logical, nuanced arguments in 240 characters. And yet, this is how we receive so much of our information. This is what draws our attention, our sound bites and quips and things like that that actually limit our humanity. They remove us physically, and so they naturally raise within us the worst parts of the way in which we're communicated. The very nature of social media does not draw out the best of human communication. It actually limits human communication. And so there's a reason we experience and swim in conflict. Because, I don't know about you, but my guess is almost everyone in this room probably engaged some form of social media, some form of entertainment, some form of conflict this week. And so we exist in water that we don't even realize. What the heck is water? It's everywhere. It's so pervasive that I think we've resolved ourselves to the fact that it just is what it is. Right? How do you actually pursue a culture of peace? Many of us don't even know how to answer that question anymore. We don't know how to be different. This is just the water in which we swim. Is it even possible to have that sort of community or that sort of culture? Well, the vision of peace was Jesus' vision for his community of followers, that they would be a community marked by peace. And when I say peace, I don't just mean the cessation of conflict and fighting. I mean peace in like the Old Testament word shalom, the idea of harmony and relationship and flourishing, that Jesus's vision for the community of people that would be marked by his teaching, his way, his kingdom, would be a community not marked by conflict or division and strife but that it would actually be marked by harmony and peace and flourishing for all. But the question is, how do we actually have that sort of community? How do we pursue that sort of world? Because we recognize we're not going to get that from the world around us. But we all have an innate desire for it. Who doesn't want to be part of a community of peace? Well, for the next five weeks, we're going to launch into one of Jesus' key teachings for, I think, how we actually become a community like that. It's in Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to call this series Conflicted, because in one sense, we live in a world of conflict, we feel internal confliction, and we're going to look to Jesus' way in which we can actually become a people of peace. We're going to slowly work through this chapter. 
So let me give you a little bit of context on Matthew 18 as we jump into it. So the Gospel of Matthew is written by one of Jesus' first followers, a man named Matthew. He was Jewish, and when he went to write his Gospel, which is a record of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection, he specifically wrote it to a Jewish audience. And because he wrote it to a Jewish audience to reveal that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah, the one who is going to come to establish God's kingdom, he sets up his record of Jesus' ministry with a very Jewish lens. One of the lenses that he uses is he builds Jesus' life and ministry around five key teachings of Jesus. Now, this is purposeful in a Jewish mindset. Because the Jewish worldview is foundationally built upon five books that we call the Pentateuch, or they would call Torah, what we have in the first five books of the Bible. Five key books that shape life. That's not just the law, but it's life, the vision for reality, flourishing, all of this. Matthew, when he writes to a Jewish audience, gives five key teachings that accord that Jesus is actually bringing a new understanding of the law. He's not abolishing it, he's coming to fulfill it, but he's meant to lead into its fullness. So there's five of these key teachings. You probably engaged some of them. Jesus' famous first one in the Gospel of Matthew is known often as the Sermon on the Mount. But then Jesus goes on to give a key teaching on the mission of his people. In Matthew 13, he gives a third set of teaching on parables of the kingdom. And his fourth set of teaching, which is what we're going to look at today, is a teaching on how his community is called to live in light of who he is as king. And then the fifth set of teaching is ultimately on what's to come. It's in Matthew 25 and 26. So five key teachings, we're going to look at one of them over the next five weeks, because in it, Jesus gives his vision for a community of flourishing and life. So with that said, let's jump in. We'll start to unpack it together. So it begins, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest of the kingdom in the kingdom of heaven? So the teaching that Jesus is going to give actually launches out of the response with a question, a question from his disciples. Jesus had come to reveal that he was the Messiah, and his disciples knew because they were good, well-informed Jews that the promise of the Messiah was that he would set up his messianic kingdom. So the reality is, as they get closer to that reality of Jesus and understanding his Messiah, they naturally begin to think of the community and kingdom that he's establishing. And they have a very, what I would say, a very natural human question. In this community, in this kingdom that's going to come, Who's the top? Who's the greatest? Who's the haves? Who's that going to be? I think this is a natural human question because I think whenever we enter a new community, we instinctively do this as human beings, don't we? We're like, who's in the in? Who's not? What what does greatness look like? What what am I supposed to aim at? What am I supposed to, to go after? Who's on the top? We naturally pursue status in community. And so as they think about their community, they ask ask a very natural question. But the problem is, the question itself is inherently flawed. To ask the question, who's the greatest, is to immediately look for something that separates you from the community that you're a part of. It's to ask the question, who's in and who's out? And how do I get here and not here? It naturally looks towards separateness within human community. How can I be different from them and stand out? 
Now, I don't think that's just a question that's in Jesus' day. I think that's actually a key question of our culture and is actually an increasing question of our culture. Andy Crouch, who was the editor for Christianity Today a number of years ago, wrote a really fascinating article a couple years back, kind of analyzing uh, how sociologists had begun to understand a major shift in Western culture. Western culture, by and large, for many, many years, was seen as a kind of guilt and innocence culture. We have an understanding of guilt, an inherent feeling of guilt. We see it to wage to not live guilty, but to be innocent. We often have contrasted, and sociologists have contrasted this with Eastern culture, which often has an honor and shame culture. So we have a sense of shame. The way honor comes is from the public kind of perception of who I am. It's a little bit of understanding who we are in relationship to our community, how things look. In a shame culture, you know you're good or bad by what your community says about you. In a guilt culture, you know you are good or bad about, by how you feel about your behavior and choices. Now, what's interesting about this, stick with me for a second, what's interesting about this is sociologists began to see that there was a major shift happening in our culture because of the pervasiveness of technology. So where Western culture had primarily been a guilt culture, technology suddenly put everyone and our lives and our inner lives and our pictures and all of that in a public way, right? Anything happens today, it's recorded on the internet and it's put for all to see. And so there was this inherent move towards the perception of the community influencing the way we understood ourselves. But because we have this kind of guilt lens that we're built out of, what sociologists began to realize is shame started to become pervasive, but the way our culture began to deal with shame was not in the traditional Eastern sense. The way they began to deal with shame was by seeking to increase their influence and popularity, especially when it came to technology. So what they label it now is not that we're in a shame-honor culture, but we're actually in a shame-fame culture. We assuage shame by seeking popularity and influence. And if you want, now for some of you, you might be like, ah, that, that feels odd. If that's the case, you're probably part of the older generations, not the younger generation, right? I, I stand in this weird millennial crossroads, right? So I had the internet, but I didn't really have a cell phone until I was in college. But especially younger generations, this is their reality. They grow up in a reality where every fault is suddenly broadcast to everyone. You trip and fall at the hallway at school, everyone knows about it and they've seen the video. You know this, right? You high schoolers, you know this is the case. And so the way we try to assuage that reality is we seek to gain popularity and influence. And because of the pervasiveness of social media, that becomes the means. So we try to cultivate our, li our lives in search of likes and influence and to gain our audience and maybe we can grow our popularity to help assuage the shame that we're so scared of. And so the question of who is the greatest is a prevalent question in our society and sought after constantly on the internet. I mean, the people now post things online and if they do not get the amount of likes that they think they should get, they pull it down. Because they're after the, inf the, the pop, like, this is the way that we engage. And again, if you're like, I have no idea how that works, you might be old, I'm sorry, I'm just, just letting you know. I'm just here to, you know, share the news. But this is, this is the shift in culture. So the question of who is the greatest is a question a lot of people are asking. How does Jesus respond to this question in regards to his community? 
Well, like Jesus, he gives them an object lesson. Look at verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus responds to their question by bringing a child into the middle of his disciples, and he says, truly, which in Jesus' words means, listen up, pay attention. When he uses that word in Matthew, he's, he's trying to get you to focus. And then he gives them a really key principle. It's actually in the original language an if-then statement. So it, it could just as well read, I say to you, if you do not turn, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That statement, you will never, is actually a double negative in the Greek. It's an emphasis. This will not happen. For Jesus, the response for him is to say, what my community, the principle of my community, my kingdom, my reality is, you must turn from this way of thinking, and you must become like children. That's the way in which you experience my kingdom. If you don't, then you will not. Well, what does it mean, does Jesus mean, when he's saying, become like children? Well, Jesus isn't referencing some, like, sentimental quality of children, right? That, that's a very modern, Western kind of idea. We, we have, because of marketing, because of all the things around us, we kind of have this idealized version of children, and so oftentimes we can think of like to become like a child, to have wonder and innocence and a forgiving spirit. That's not what Jesus means. And that's not how they viewed children in the ancient world. Again, that's very Western. Any of you parents know children are great, but they're also monsters. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the most self-centered human beings on the planet. They just are. It's just natural. I'm not trying to dissuade. I love my kids, but it's just the natural reality, right? And so, so it isn't this inherent quality that he's pointing to. What he's referencing when he says you must become like children, he's referencing their position in society. Children were at the bottom of the social pecking order. They were dependent on everyone else. They had no societal rights, no societal influence. And so what Jesus is saying is that to become like a children is actually not to position yourself at the top, it's to take a posture and position yourself at the bottom. That that's the way of his kingdom. Remember, Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It's upside down from the world. In our world, we seek greatness. We seek the top. We seek influence. Jesus says, no, no, no. In my kingdom, you have to become like a child. You have to become like the lowest, like a dependent, insignificant human being. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the most significant quality of the child in this story is that he had no status, no importance, except as a responsibility for others to care for. To become like a child is therefore to renounce any notions of self-importance and to embrace insignificance. This is true humility, the prime characteristic of all who follow Jesus. Catch what he says there. It's to embrace or to, to give up any notion of self-importance and to embrace insignificance. And Jesus gives them a very visual illustration, right? Imagine just for, for a moment, if I had all of us stand up in the room, and I put a child, so the language he uses here is of a little kid, probably toddler, kindergartner age. If I put a child in the middle of the room, nobody would notice them. 
We're in a room full of tall adults. That's Jesus' whole point. They're small and insignificant. And that's actually where greatness lies in the kingdom of God. So he points them towards this reality, and then he gives them, I think, two practices out of that principle to pursue. He makes it really clear. The first one comes in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right? So you can't experience the kingdom unless you become like a child. So what do you do? Well, the first thing he reminds us is you pursue dependence instead of power. This language that he uses, whoever humbles himself, right? He's drawing a conclusion. You don't see it in our English translations, but in the original Greek, it has the word therefore in it. So it's a conclusion that he's drawing from the principle. And then he gives them this this call, whoever humbles himself. That word humble, we we understand it intuitively, but the, the Greek word is this idea of actually to cause someone to lose prestige or status, to, to lower oneself. It's, it's functionally to put yourself in the lowest point. And Jesus says, this is actually the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Notice, Jesus doesn't entirely rebuke their desire. He doesn't say, hey, Greatness isn't a thing. Jesus knows that all of us are wired intuitively for a desire for purpose and significance. I don't think there's any one of us here who's like, you know what I really want from my life? For it not to matter. I just want to eke out my existence and then go on to whatever's next. No, we all have a wired intuitiveness for purpose and significance. What Jesus is trying to help them remember is your purpose and significance is not found within your self-importance or self-focus. It's found within ultimately being part of my kingdom and making God the center of our life. And when that's the case, when we step into community, we don't seek to be the greatest. We seek to position ourselves in the place of servants, right? A child is someone who is dependent on another. And we're called to be the sort of people who are dependent on God. They're insignificant in relation to the community. We take the posture of insignificance in order to make God significant. So to turn and become like a child is actually to live with a dependence on God and to embrace a posture of powerlessness, of to say, I don't have to be the top or the greatest when I'm part of whatever community I'm a part of. Again, hear these words. Powerlessness is a good quality in the upside-down kingdom of heaven. To be a citizen of heaven means abandoning one's rights and living to serve, not to gain power. So we're called to take this posture. Whoever would be the greatest in my kingdom, they must humble themselves like this child to embrace a position or a posture of dependence and powerlessness. Walt Kaiser tells the story of the funeral of King Louis XIV of France. Louis XIV had requested that at his funeral, which was held in the Cathedral of Notre Dame, that the cathedral would be kept dark except for one single candle that would be placed on his casket to light the room. But the story goes that when the preacher for that day got up to give the funeral orientation, that he walked over to the casket and he snuffed out the candle. And then he began his message with these words, only God is great. Only God is great. 
See, that's the posture of the follower of Jesus. It's not to make much of oneself. It's to remember that in Jesus' kingdom, there's only one great one, and it's not you or me, it's him. And when we embrace him as the great one, when we make our lives about his fame, his glory, his kingdom, that's actually freeing for our experience of harmony and peace and flourishing. Not one of us are ever meant to be the greatest in a community. Our shoulders can't bear that weight. That's that why all who pursue it end up falling at some point. There's only one person who's capable of bearing the load of greatness, and that's the great one himself, Jesus, the Son of God. And so when you realize that, that life is about him, you find that larger purpose and significance. It's not that you don't get joy. You actually get the flourishing of life and joy and fullness in his kingdom by not making it about yourself, but by making it about him. And so the call for Jesus is pursue that. Humble yourself. Put yourself in the places of dependence and powerlessness so that you might experience the flourishing of what you're designed for. Not only that, the second thing I think Jesus calls us to is we're to practice loving care instead of introducing temptation. Look what he says in verse 5. So whoever humbles, that's the first part, then whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So Jesus continues to move from principle to practice, and he starts to give them the context of what this actually looks like to embrace humility in the context of community. And he kind of has these two opposing realities. One, the first is that if you embrace the truth of the kingdom, then you will seek to be a person who welcomes the lowest and the least. When he says, whoever receives one such child, on one aspect, he's referencing the child who embraces the truth of his kingdom, but it's also, again, a reference to the, and carries the sense of the lowest in position and social status. Jesus says to be part of his kingdom is to receive those in that place with welcome or hospitality. That's what the word receive carries. It's an idea of hospitality or welcomeness. When you recognize that ultimately in Jesus' community, humility is the posture we're called for. You will create the sort of environment in your life, in your community, that welcomes all, that doesn't create the haves and have-nots, that doesn't create the great and the least, but recognizes that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and therefore everyone is welcomed in. Commentator says again, we must welcome each other in the church as people who all have the same status. That is, no status. We're not a people that's consumed with our status. We recognize we have no status. We come to Jesus, not of our greatness or perfection. We come out of our brokenness and fallenness, realizing we have nothing that can save ourselves and embracing the grace that he offers and the forgiveness of our sins that he offers by his death and resurrection. To receive Christ is to embrace that you're not capable of being great and you need him to save you. And when you embrace that, you recognize the lowliness of your own status and it creates in you a willingness to embrace others to create a welcoming environment. And Jesus says, to receive the lowest is to receive him. It's to receive him. He would go on to say later in his fifth teaching in Matthew, what you've done to the least of my brothers, you've done to me. So to truly embrace humility is to welcome and serve the lowest of Jesus' people. Not the top, 
It's to be the sort of community that welcomes all, but especially the lowest ones on the social scale. But it also means, and Jesus pairs that with, that we'll seek to be a community that does not actively seek to be a stumbling block for others. He uses strong words here, right? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, so there's that pairing of least and discipleship there, to sin, it would be better to him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's strong language. The word there that we say causes to sin is the Greek word scandalon. It's where we get our English word scandal. It means trap or stumbling block. It isn't just idea. Jesus isn't just here of like, this, this is the, the person that would lead someone to fall away from Jesus and his teaching, to fall into a pattern of sin that actually rejects Jesus and what it means to walk in righteousness. And he says, for those people, it would be better that you would have a millstone, which in Jesus's day would have been a large, several-ton stone that donkeys would have pushed around to grind grain. It would be better for you to have that tied around your neck and thrown into the sea which was a horrible way in the Jewish mindset to die. They hated the sea and to drown with no proper burial. Was, and Jesus says, that's better. That's better than the people that would cause someone to fall away from following me. And so he gives the warning that we're meant to be a community that embraces the sort of posture of humility that welcomes others and then leads them towards Jesus and works not to be a harm in their spiritual journey of following him. Now, we're going to unpack that second point a little bit more because this is kind of a transition verse. And so we're going to lean into that a little bit more next week of how we seek to be a community that doesn't hinder people but actually helps them. But for today, I just want you to see the reality that Jesus' practice of humility is that we will become a community that actually puts our lens on loving others. That's the key. Humility seeks to embrace the position of a servant, and then it puts the needs of others ahead of itself. That's why I think C.S. Lewis gives us one of the great descriptions of what humility looks like in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes, to even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody, he's nothing. He says, probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Some people have taken Lewis's quote here and they turn it into a great little phrase. To embrace humility is not to think more of yourself or less of yourself. It's to think of yourself less. And that's Jesus' point. That to embrace humility is to posture yourself as a servant. And it's not to think about yourself, but to think about the care and needs of others. Therefore, you'll seek to be welcoming. You'll seek not to hinder them. You'll seek to be an agent of Jesus' kingdom. And when we embrace that, that trace transforms everything. That's why I think you're going to see lots of principles as we explore over the next week. But the starting point is so key for the sort of community that Jesus wants us to be. That if we're going to be a community of peace and flourishing and life and harmony, it starts with all of us embracing the posture and the practices of humility. 
And if we think through this, these first verses for a moment, I just want you to imagine what a community would look like that would really embrace the principles and practices of humility. What would it look like if every single person, when they stepped into communal spaces, sought to serve, not to be served? Started to, sought to position themselves not in the highest spots, but the lowest spots. Sought not to think of themselves, but what benefit they could bring to others around them. What sort of community would that look like? Can I tell you what I don't think it would look like? And I'm going to say this with as much pastoral love and care and grace as I can muster. So hear me in my heart. I want to be careful. I don't think it would look like this chart. That's the percentage of people who serve at our campus. Of the 360 members and regular attendees. So, If you're visiting here today, thank you. That's not you. I'm not talking to you. I'm just having a family moment. We're glad you're here. Can tune out for a second. Of the 360 members and regular attendees at our campus, over the last year, 26% have served. That's just, that's not like regular serving even. That's just numbers of served at some point. So if we're called to be a community that embraces humility and service and the lowest posture and the care and concern for others, I I don't think it looks like that. I think that's a chart that I would expect if I looked at my, those who serve at my local school or those who serve in my community. I'm not sure a community that's meant to be marked by the humility of Jesus would have this low a percentage of people serving one another. I'm thankful for you that do serve. And I'm not trying to give you a guilt trip. I'm trying to help you envision what we are and lean towards what we could be. Because when I look at that chart, I get sad. And I get sad for two reasons. I get sad because I get sad about the potential impact that so many people miss out on because God has wired our community with various gifts and various expressions and people are not experiencing the full benefit of what we could be for one another. But I also get sad because you're missing out on the experience of the kingdom. If you can't serve here in your spiritual family, statistics will tell you, that usually doesn't mean you're serving out there. If we can't practice this here where it's safe, where we ask, hey, just serve once a month, then how are we going to be the sort of people that step into our PTAs or step into what our government needs or step into our work or step into our job and seek to embrace a posture of humility that says, how do I serve? How do I love? How do I be an agent for the kingdom here? Like if we can't do that where we're supposed to practice, how are we going to do it when game time's on the line and we have the pressure of the world around us? I mean, we've spent two years, two years, just trying to get full kids ministry open at our first service. You're packed in here because our parents can't come to first service because we can't get enough kids to serve the least people in our community. 
And those kids need what you have to bring. That's what's sad. So I don't want to just be negative. I also just want you to imagine for a moment what could a community feel like where that whole pie chart was all green. Man, it would feel like flourishing because you would be lifted up and others would be lifted up. There'd be flourishing in our gifts and our community. There'd be opportunities to do things we never imagined. It would overflow to impact our schools and our cities. What would those feel like if every Christian took the posture when they stepped into those spaces of I'm going to not seek to be great, but I'm going to seek to go to the lowest spot and I'm just going to serve, serve, serve wherever I can. Can you imagine that sort of culture and that sort of world? I don't think it would look like a world of conflict. I think it would look like a world of flourishing. Jesus gives us the beginning of the path. Embrace humility, its posture, its practices, and seek to be the sort of person that says, how do I bring flourishing to the largest amount of people around me? How do I use what I have to lift others up? Man, that would change everything. Not just here. That would, that would literally be a revolution in our community if we really embraced it. Because in Jesus' kingdom, greatness is defined by humility. That is the way forward. And and you need no greater example than that, than to look at Jesus himself. Jesus was the greatest human being that ever lived. Fully God, but also fully man. He's the only one worthy of worship and honor and praise. No one is worthy like King Jesus. And yet, when he looked at the community that he would form, what position did he pursue? What did he do? Well, listen to how Paul describes it in Philippians 2. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on earth and under the earth that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when Jesus looked at the world, when he saw the needs of humanity and our sinfulness, what posture did he take? Did he come to the earth and say, hey, everybody, I'm awesome. Follow me. See how great I am. I'm the son of God. No. He said, how do I humble myself to the point of death? The lowest spot you could be in the history of humanity is to stand fully under the wrath and judgment of God for the sake of sin. And that's exactly where he positioned himself to take all of God's wrath and all of God's judgment so he could offer salvation to you and I. You you don't get lower than that. And yet it's the very thing for which he will be praised for all eternity. And so he gave us the path He didn't just teach us the principle. He embodied it for us. And then he says, have this same mindset in yourself. Have embraced that posture because that's where greatness is found. That's where flourishing is found. And if we follow his example, 
I genuinely believe it will change our world. So with that said, how do we begin to do it? Well, I think we begin to do it by actually coming back to the place of just dependence. To, to for a moment, embrace that position of little kids, remind ourselves that we can't do this. We need God to do this for us and to set our attention and our affection back on Christ. So the way I want to do that this morning is to give us as a community an opportunity to do that. Is I, I just I want to invite you to kind of come back in some sense to a starting point, to that simple place of desire for Christ. So what I want to do is in a moment, I'm just going to read a prayer over us, a prayer that reminds us of the paradoxical nature of Jesus's kingdom. And then after that prayer, I'm going to just give you a few minutes right where you're at to kind of let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. Maybe draw areas of attention in your own pride or struggle or whatever. Maybe you need to confess. Maybe you just need to ask God to give you. Maybe you need to ask him to give you a vision for where he might want to lead you in serving others. But let God do his thing. And then the band's going to come and they're just going to lead us in a reflective song. We're just going to invite you during that first song to continue and let it kind of wash over you and draw you back to this simple commitment that we don't want anything else but Christ and that he's worthy of our worship. And just let's let God cultivate dependence. And then may that overflow into how we serve. So wherever you're at, I'll invite you just for a moment to bow your heads, close your eyes, not to be weird, just give you a moment, private reflection. Let me read this prayer and then we'll just invite the Holy Spirit to do his work among us. God, we pray these prayers, this words on behalf of our community this morning. Lord, hi and holy, meek, and lowly. You have brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox, Lord, that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. So let me find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.